whistleblower or traitor. Today, Monday, June 10th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Edward Snowden admits he leaked the documents that revealed secret government surveillance programs. So is Snowden the new Bradley Manning? We'll compare and contrast. Also, an investigative reporter says there's a lot more surveillance going on than we realize, but he's not too spooked about it. I am probably the least paranoid person in Washington. When I don't participate in things like Facebook, it's just because I find it annoying. And later, BBC reporter in Syria, Lena Sinjab, on why she's chosen to leave her beloved war-torn Damascus. I want to regain my humanity, my soul. I want to regain my heartbeats. I want life. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Yesterday morning, the name Edward Snowden meant nothing to most of you. Today, the 29-year-old is at the center of a global firestorm. Snowden declared over the weekend that he is the one who leaked documents to the press that revealed top-secret government surveillance programs. He did so from Hong Kong, where he fled when he left Hawaii. The former intelligence contractor told Britain's Guardian newspaper that his motivation was not personal gain. In a conversation with reporters Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, Snowden said he wanted to protect the basic liberties of people around the world. He added that if he had wanted to profit from all the sensitive data he had access to, he could have blown the cover on the full roster of people working in the U.S. intelligence community. If I had just wanted to harm the U.S., you know, that you could shut down the, the surveillance system in an afternoon. Um, but that's not my intention. And I, I think for anyone um, making that argument, they need to think, if they were in my position, uh, and, and you know, you live a privileged life, you, you're living in Hawaii in, in paradise and making a ton of money, what would it take to make you leave everything behind? So whistleblower or traitor? The question also gets raised when speaking of Bradley Manning. The world's Arun Roth has been covering the court-martial of Bradley Manning, and he joins us now. So Manning and Snowden, what strikes you about the two of them, Arun? Give us the similarities and contrasts. Well, both of them clearly consider themselves to be whistleblowers. It's amazing how we've already come to the Bradley Manning debate with Snowden already, the whistleblower or traitor argument. Uh, And both of them wanted to see accountability. Bradley Manning for what was going on in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and Snowden with what he considered to be a really intrusive government surveillance apparatus that he thought should get out there. Both of them wanted these facts to get out there and, and basically to trigger a debate in the wider society about it. And what about the nature of the actual information they both leaked, uh, Manning and Snowden? What do you think it shows? It's interesting. Snowden himself actually draws a distinction with Manning. He says Manning, he did consider him a whistleblower, but he points out that Snowden actually was more discriminating in how he chose to release information. With Bradley Manning, uh, as we know, especially with the State Department cables, which there were hundreds of thousands of them, the critique of him is that, well, he released too much. He was not discriminating. Snowden, in fact, was very particular 
And even though the documents which he was releasing are more sensitive, these are top secret documents, Marco. The ones that Bradley Manning released were not that level of sensitivity. Snowden was very sensitive about releasing just what he thought was necessary, not to damage U.S. security, but to let people know about these programs that were going on. And just remind us, what has uh, Edward Snowden actually released? What has he leaked? Uh, the big one would be, say, this PRISM program that we've heard about. This is a uh, monitoring of uh, phone records, not actual phone conversations, but the metadata, everything that we know about when the calls are made, who they are made to, all sorts of other information about that. A massive data harvesting operation. So as someone who set out with the idea of leaking information, what mistakes did Bradley Manning make, do you think? And do you feel that Edward Snowden, I mean, we don't have much to go on except this interview in the uh, Guardian article, learned from uh, Manning's mistakes? Yeah, it feels like they couldn't be more different in that respect. Bradley Manning, you almost wonder if he even really had a plan, uh, what he was going to do if he got caught, when he got caught, what exactly was his end game? Uh, with Snowden, we know, actually, he's giving these interviews from Hong Kong. He, he's probably going to face the music at some point, one way or another. But he was, again, more deliberative about what he leaked and seems to have had a plan about what was going to happen when that information came out and chose to expose himself, whereas Bradley Manning was exposed by a hacker who he talked to. So Manning enlisted in the Army, posted to Iraq, which is where his troubles began, uh, when he downloaded and distributed the classified cables to WikiLeaks. Manning, we know, was disillusioned by the Iraq War and the U.S. involvement in it. That seems to be his aha moment. Do you have a sense of of what the aha moment was for Edward Snowden in this post-9-11 world? What we've heard in the interviews from him is that he says there was not a particular aha moment. It it was more of a cumulative process as as these details built up over time with him. And like you said, with with Manning, it was the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. With Snowden, it appears to be this apparatus, this vast intelligence data gathering apparatus, which he thinks was something that should be debated, that people should know about in America. So both Manning and Snowden, it's noteworthy, uh, in their 20s when they provided these leaks, uh, they're young and I guess in the grand organization of intelligence, fairly low level. What do you think that tells us? It's really almost shocking. We heard in detail last week at Bradley Manning's court-martial about what sounded like very lax security uh, in the area where he was had access to these documents. Snowden, again, he's a contractor. He's not even employed directly by the U.S. government, had access to top-secret documents. You, you, you wonder, uh, we found out, obviously, with Bradley Manning, there are tens of thousands of people with access to these documents. You wonder how the government is actually managing to keep these secrets with so many people who have access to them and so many people at a low level. It's remarkable. The world's Arun Ra. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Marco. We're joined now by Robert O'Hara. He's an investigative reporter with The Washington Post and has written extensively about government surveillance. So uh, this young man, uh, Mr. Snowden, worked for Booz Allen Hamilton, a company that's a government subcontractor. Just describe this world for us uh, uh, of this young man who didn't work for the government. He worked for their contractor. He's a, a low-level guy who had access. How does it all work? There's a little window here into a very, very large world and a big change in our government. Over the last 15 years or so, the government, for reasons of savings and and principle, has uh, dramatically increased the outsourcing of everything from maintenance uh, and technology to intelligence. He represents one of tens of thousands of intelligence workers hired since 9-11. I mean, there are billions of dollars, it seems, of contracts that Booz Allen Hamilton has been retained for by the government. Is this the, is this the best way for the government to operate intelligence services in a post-9-11 world? It's very safe to say that the contractors provide incredibly valuable services across the board, including in the intelligence world. 
Another thing that's safe to say is the government probably could not get by without them. I was looking at some data uh, that I think still holds, which shows that 70% of the intelligence community's budget goes towards contracting. But the downside is, uh, as we wrote today in the Washington Post, that the contractor world has expanded so rapidly while the oversight inside the government has remained largely stagnant so that uh, you have real problems with oversight, not just from a contracting budget spending perspective, but quite obviously uh, when it comes to keeping track of insiders who might leak information. I mean, it seems one of the big questions that that all of this raises is who actually owns personal information about you, about me. I mean, one of the notions expressed by uh, Snowden in the Guardian interview with him that the government has massive amounts of data and they could use the system to go back in time. Can you explain that system to us and how it relates to the possession of our own data, personal information, and can the government sell it later? Well, you've just described uh, another branch on the tree. So we have two things that we're talking about here. One of them, of course, is is the security breach, and I think that's very, very important. The other is what was leaked, and that also is important. Uh, The program that is front and center that the Washington Post first wrote about was called PRISM. And for the first time, it confirmed things that we sort of assumed were true, which is the government works very closely with companies that collect um, almost an unimaginable amount of information about every American and like foreigners Facebook who use Google those and Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Google. And what they're doing is they're collecting information in an expedited, very direct way, um, and it's all under a cloak of top secrecy. The government has said that this is incredibly valuable source of intelligence uh, for counterterrorism purposes. But the problem is it's a proverbial tip of the iceberg of a huge change that our society is going through. I've called it the data revolution. I wrote a book several years ago called No Place to Hide that examined the relationship between the government and the private sector. And the reality is that uh, the government relies heavily on the companies that we do business with every day to collect information about us and to do threat and security analysis. Robert O'Hara, how much uh, will uh, whistleblowers keep uh, trying to reveal secrets or or truth, depending on your point of view, uh, the word? uh, And and will the government or their contractors try and stop it even more aggressively? This is a very, very complicated question you've asked. Uh, Whistleblowers are absolutely essential and need to be protected. And yet the the title whistleblower should not automatically convey uh, some elevated virtue because in some cases, there are whistleblowers who are revealing secrets and they think that they're being heroic when, in fact, they're hurting things more than they're helping. At the same time, you have an Obama administration that has been highly aggressive going after whistleblowers um, in a way that seems a lot overdone. Mm. And uh, it seems unnecessarily authoritarian to me. On the other hand, one has to accept that uh, when there are national security breaches, there have to be consequences for the, the people that uh, – reveal national security secrets. And, and the White House's rationale that uh, w- we need uh, these secrets for uh, fighting extremism, for our own uh, national security, How do you, what do you think of that argument? I go back to something that Viet Dinh, uh, the author of the Patriot Act, told me some years ago. He said that never trust the government, which is really interesting. He's conservative, Federalist Society, constitutional lawyer, But he was saying something that's at the core of our American values, which is you never trust the government. You always ask for evidence and you always seek 
uh, checks and balances. In this case, there's a lot uh, that is being probably properly cloaked in secrecy. Uh, but I think that the Bush and, and Obama administrations, they're putting much more behind the walls of secrecy than they ought to. And they need to be held accountable and they need to have to answer for some of the choices they're making. And I think that things are out of balance right now. What are your own thoughts, Robert O'Hara, on what uh, Edward Snowden says he did? There's no question that some of the revelations that he provided about the collection of information about telephone calls, millions of them, and the relationships between the government and these data giants like Microsoft, Apple, and Google are stunning revelations and will give us uh, much room for debate um, and help fuel debate about privacy in our society. At the same time, one can't ignore the reality that what appears to be a relatively low-level intelligence official somehow got access to top-secret documents. And I'm left with the question as an investigative reporter is, how did that happen and why did that happen? And what does that tell us about the uh, security of this huge security industrial complex that we've built since 9-11? And have you in the past uh, couple of weeks become more cautious about how you operate in the digital world? Have you been a little more resistant or reluctant to use your cell phone, for example? Well, I have a funny uh, response to that, and I've been dealing with this uh, for more than a decade as I've been writing about uh, data collection and uh, intelligence, domestic intelligence. And that is uh, that I am probably the least paranoid person in Washington when I don't participate in things like Facebook It's just because I find it annoying. Mm -hmm. Um, I can recommend that uh, just as a good uh, data hygiene uh, practice that uh, your listeners take great care with anything they put into writing. And it's not because the government's going to get it, but it's one ought ought to assume that it's going to become public. Uh, And so I take these steps as a matter of course, but I am not taking any extra steps. I'm not particularly concerned. I know there's risks in engaging with the cyberspace and the digital world, but uh, one makes calculated risks every hour of every day. Robert O'Hara is Washington Post reporter and author of the book, No Place to Hide, Behind the Scenes of Our Emerging Surveillance Society. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Still ahead on the world, calling all butlers and would-be butlers, the developing world needs you on Public Radio International. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Food has not always been plentiful. In China, the country has had its share of famine over the centuries. But these days, more Chinese than ever are eating well, maybe too well. What do I mean? Well, the World Watch Institute estimates that every year, $32 billion worth of food is thrown away in China. And food waste makes up 70 percent of the garbage there. Most of it ends up in landfills, contributing to global warming in its production, transportation and decay. A new national clean-your-plate campaign is aimed at getting Chinese, especially affluent urban Chinese, to stop over-ordering and start valuing their food. For our What's for Lunch series, the world's Mary Kay Magstad had lunch in Beijing with a couple of the campaign's organizers. This is a great little neighborhood joint near my home in Beijing. It serves roasted fish and spicy sauces with a wealth of side dishes. 
The place is jammed, but I managed to snare a booth in the back with a couple of young business execs who, with some friends, launched a campaign to save food and help the environment. Zhang Ye explains how they got the idea while taking a training course together on a college campus. We saw the students were wasting a lot of food. The woman who's collecting students' leftovers feel that the students nowadays don't know how to cherish food. And then we just started talking about the phenomenon in their own life. Zhang says his parents always told him not to waste food. I say my parents used to tell me that too. That they'd say, "Think of all the starving children in Ethiopia." He says his parents weren't familiar with Ethiopia. They just、uh, carried the traditions that passed down in the thousands years of history, and actually, my parents were the people that suffered hunger. The Great Famine in China in the 1960s actually is more serious than Ethiopia. He's right. The Chinese famine killed some 40 million people. Zhang thinks memories of hunger have some effect on why people overorder now. First, one, China is now rich. People finally have something to spend. The second thing is China's dining culture. If they have something left in the plate, they have their face. If you have more than you actually need, it's kind of thing to be proud of. But the new campaign uses the slogan "I'm proud of my clear plate." Zhang's colleague Shashuya says the group started the campaign in January by taking leaflets and posters to restaurants all over Beijing. 就是每家每户的到那个酒店啊，参观 went to different restaurants and explained to them about our campaign, and we have given out posters to more than 1,000 restaurants in Beijing. And they started posting online on Weibo, China's version of Twitter. They weren't the first to do this. Almost a year earlier, journalist Xu Zhejun had posted a photo of an empty plate on Weibo with the caption "Operation Empty Plate." But Zhang and Sha and their friends had better timing. Their call to action came just after new Communist Party chief Xi Jinping came to power, demanding an end to extravagant banquets and other self-indulgences by party officials. Last year, government officials spent 48 billion dollars on state banquets. This year, China's Commerce Ministry says the sale of luxury food items has been cut in half, and catering companies in Beijing and Shanghai have seen business drop by as much as 35 percent, as officials have been ordered to cut back and not waste food. That's progress, says Zhang Ye. 呃，关门行动开始就是民众自发的，而且是完全是针对民众的，只是说。Actually, this campaign it started from the bottom to top, and then it was promoted from top to the bottom. The Clean Your Plate campaign got millions of mentions on Weibo and prominent coverage in the official party newspaper and on government TV news. Not bad for an idea dreamed up by a few friends around a dining table. And since the campaign started, many restaurants have started offering smaller portions. Encouraging guests to take home doggy bags and giving out certificates to those who clean their plates. The owner of the restaurant where we're eating, Xie Guoliang, says his customers have started ordering less. I catch him outside on a cigarette break. And actually,、uh, my employees—they have been encouraging people not to order too much too. Actually, this shouldn't be what a businessman should. 
be doing because as a businessman, you always want people to buy more. And why do you do it? This is how we were taught. We know that sometimes the hurtful things actually are good for you. Back in the restaurant, we tuck into our meal. We do a reasonable job of getting through it, but Zheng Ye is not entirely satisfied. So, how do you think we did on ordering? About right? Too much? I think we should learn from next table. I look over, and indeed, the half dozen young office workers at the next table have absolutely polished their plates. I ask if they've heard of the Clean Your Plate campaign. No, says one of them. This is just what we do. Why waste food? Why indeed? Though it still may take some time and a little convincing, maybe even arm twisting, to make this habit fully trickle up to China's affluent elite. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstead in Beijing. Our series "What's for Lunch" is part of Food for Nine Billion, a two-year project of Homelands Productions and the Center for Investigative Reporting, with broadcast partners PBS NewsHour and American Public Media's Marketplace. You can explore more of the series at theworld.org. We've also got a "What's for Lunch" Instagram campaign going, but today we're asking you what's left over from lunch. Take a photo of the food you've left on your plate. We're not into shaming. Don't forget to use the hashtag "What's for Lunch." That's what's. Number four, lunch. What's for lunch? Today's GeoQuiz offers new insight into life during the Italian Renaissance. The insight comes from a team of Italian researchers. They've been examining the bones of nine children who were part of the Medici family in the 16th century. Their remains were preserved in a secret crypt beneath the Basilica of San Lorenzo. That's one of the biggest churches in the Italian city we're looking for today. The city is also home to Michelangelo's famous statue of David. The Medici's, as you probably remember from history class, were wealthy Renaissance rulers. They enjoyed the best of everything life had to offer back then. So why did many of the Medici kids die young? That's a mystery the researchers think they may have now solved. The skeletal remains of the Medici um, children were studied by a team of anthropologists and paleopathologists, and uh, um, we discovered that they were affected by rickets. The patient's skeletal remains presented rickets. It turns out that a vitamin D deficiency was an unintended consequence of the Medici's privileged upbringing. Details when we come back with the answer later in the program. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, life in the middle of Syria's civil war. We were sitting on the rooftop looking at the snipers, drinking wine and doing a barbecue. We were making jokes of the war. It's bizarre how the war makes you appreciate life more, appreciate every minute, appreciate every person in your life. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. <music> 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. For the past two years, we've reported on the war in Syria, and many times in that period, we've turned to the BBC's Lena Sinjab to find out what was happening there. Lena is from Damascus, Syria's capital, and the city where she grew up. As a Syrian BBC correspondent, Lena's had a unique perspective among the small group of international reporters there. She began her coverage of the uprising in March 2011, in its early days. But now the violence has gotten so close, things have gotten so bad for residents of the city, that Lena has chosen to leave. Recently, she produced a documentary that collects her personal observations of her life as a reporter in Syria through the bloodshed. It's called Damascus Diary. Here's part of it. Damascus was a very lively and vibrant city. It used to be cramped with tourists, people shopping, people going to enjoy their lives. And it was easy to walk around and I would walk from my home everywhere. But nowadays it's completely different. The black smoke coming out of the eastern suburb was so heavy that it covered the whole sky. But it's funny that one child was talking to his father in the street and pointing to the black smoke and saying... Daddy, what is this fire? What's happening? And the father didn't want to explain what's happening. He basically said, it's the chimney. It's a fireplace. But in fact, many children at the same time, they now know what's the difference between gunfire, mortar, multiple rockets. We just arrived in Douma. It took us a long way to get here. The first men we saw, they were controlling the road, checking on cars coming in and out, people cheerfully saluting them. And they seem to be relaxed and they just want to get rid of President Bashar al-Assad. We're just walking near a area where a barrel of TNT was thrown yesterday. You can see loads of destruction and it's just a civilian area that has been targeted Cars burnt out, building completely shattered and destroyed, windows broken. I was completely shocked by the scene of Duma. There was no way of recognizing it from how it used to be before. We were also taken to a field hospital where they treat the wounded. These are makeshift hospitals that are completely secret, hidden away from the regime forces. It was the most dangerous thing uh, for the regime to discover somebody helping or rescuing an injured person. And I met this 14-year-old boy there, and I've realized that his life has completely changed as well. I'm 14 years old. And I am meant to be in school right now, but I can't go anymore because my school has been completely destroyed. I work as a nurse. I've seen people get hurt, and I wanted to make them feel better. But I can only give some basic treatments. Not long ago, I saw a 60-year-old man with his eye hanging out of its socket. I saw another guy horribly burnt. I'm feeling mentally stressed out about it. I should be speaking English to you by now, you know. I was studying English when all this started two years ago. But inshallah, we will start afresh. This revolution will not stop. For me personally, I have learned a lot. Despite all the pain, now we will only live free. We're going under the bridge now to get into Hamidiyeh. 
the covered market, where we've been told there's an event that we should witness. We've started to see some signs that something is about to happen. I just can see five girls undressing their black abaya, dressed in wedding dresses, white wedding dresses, standing in the middle of the zoo, calling for a civil state in Syria and then end for the violence. They're holding red banners, calling for the violence to stop five of them. They're not talking, they're standing, people are looking at them and watching their banners. Passers-by have stopped to watch them. I can see a policeman running towards his base, probably calling for support. I quickly moved away from them, Tuka. My heart is pounding. It's scary to imagine what will happen. I have been detained a few times myself, and though I haven't spent only one day maximum, was released just after midnight, but it was disturbing enough that I keep thinking every single night they're coming to pick me up. Getting back home maybe is the most thing that I enjoy these days. There is some normality to it, to come back to your own corner, to your own zone, sit on the couch that you like to sit on, which hundreds of thousands of others in the same country, or probably in a neighborhood next door, they don't enjoy anymore. Their houses have been destroyed. Shelling resumed this evening. I feel my house is shaking. I'm just watching a YouTube video. The mother is saying goodbye to her son who is in his coffin. She's in tears. And the men are singing for their mothers not to cry them when they die. Because this is their duty. I suddenly realized I have stopped crying. I stopped feeling. Or maybe I became numb. I want to cry over every killed person. I want to regain my humanity, my soul. I want to regain my heartbeats. I don't want to befriend death. I want life. <laughs> Not a single day passes without a social gathering with friends. Another bizarre day amidst the war. Spent it at a friend's house in the old city on the rooftop, watching the snipers around. But the funny thing is that we were sitting on the rooftop looking at the snipers, drinking wine and doing a barbecue and laughing. We were making jokes of the war. It's bizarre how the war makes you appreciate life more, appreciate every minute, appreciate every person in your life. 
you get closer to people, you tell more personal stories, probably that's what keeps us going. The only way is stand up and move on. I just said goodbye to the last friend. Everyone is saying goodbye, not knowing if we will ever meet again. The situation in Damascus is getting worse by the day. It's raining mortars in the last few days, targeting many civilian areas. Everyone here knows that when they leave home, or even if they are inside home, they can't guarantee how long they can stay alive. I'm heading now to the border. It feels so hard to leave Damascus at this time. A city that I grew up in, lived all my life, my family, my friends, my home, my memories, everything is here. We're getting closer and closer to the border and getting more nervous. It's exactly a year when last time I tried to leave the country and I was detained at the border. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. I'm now officially outside Syria. I'm not sure if I should be happy to be out or I should be worried about what will happen to my city and what will happen to my family and to my friends, those who remain in Syria. Every minute and every memory will stay in my mind and my heart. And I'm not sure if and when I'll be back. Heartbreak and uncertainty ending that report by the BBC's Lena Sinjab. You can hear Lena's whole documentary, Damascus Diary, at theworld.org. our GeoQuiz now. Valentina Giuffra is a paleopathologist at the University of Pisa in Italy. She was part of a scientific team that studied the skeletons of nine children born to the Medici family during the Renaissance. They all died young, and their skeletons were in a crypt beneath one of Italy's famous churches. The skeletons we studied uh, were located in um, the Medici chapels in the Basilica of San Lorenzo in Florence. Italy is the answer to our quiz. Giuffra and her team x-rayed the skeleton of five-year-old Filippo di Medici that revealed that his bones were curved and his skull was swollen. Those are telltale signs of rickets. In short, the scientists found the children suffered from not enough vitamin D in their diet. We were uh, surprised to discover this because their children um, grew up at an aristocratic court and they were well-nourished well-fed, so this disease was unexpected. In other words, wealth and good nourishment couldn't buy healthy bones for the first family of the Italian Renaissance. Giuffra turned to cultural clues to find out what else was going on, and she concluded that the Medici children of Florence spent a lot of time indoors in their family's many grand palaces, so they were not exposed to sunlight a whole lot. And since sunshine is a trigger for the production of vitamin D, that was a problem. Bottom line, the Medici kids needed to spend more time 
playing outside. Turning now to the world of butlers. You know the Seinfeld joke, the one about naming your kid Jeeves? If you name the baby Jeeves, you've pretty much mapped out his future. So this next story is for everyone named Jeeves, or anyone who's ever fancied the downstairs life. This is about how the demand for butlers has shot up in developing nations. And as Russell Newlove reports, many want the traditional British variety. Being British is an advantage in the international labor market. Aside from being first in line to play evil geniuses in the movies, we're now in demand from the newly moneyed in emerging markets of China and the Middle East as butlers and service staff. The market's changed, industry's changed a great deal. The idea, the sort of Downton Abbey upstairs, downstairs, Mr Cotton, he doesn't necessarily exist anymore. Sarah Vesti Romani is the director of the Bespoke Bureau, a butler training academy in London. She says around 80% of Bespoke Bureau's butlers are sent abroad. The aesthetic of a British butler is a big draw for clients. The etiquette and the tradition that comes with a British-trained butler is quite unique. And although, of course, you can get butlers that are trained elsewhere, they're not quite the same. Back in the days of Downton Abbey, there were around 30,000 British butlers. As the aristocracy dwindled, so too did the number of service staff. By the 1980s, there were only around 100 working butlers in Britain. Now, thanks to those booming emerging markets, there are between five and 10,000. Demand is so high, it's currently outstripping supply. For us, it's a busy and a growing and a thriving market. Stephen Randolph is a former butler who lists Buckingham Palace on his resume. He now runs his own agency. When he opened in 1999, he could count competitors on one hand. Now, he's lost count. He says his clients are not just looking for household servants nor are they simply private individuals. We provide butlers into anything from hotels and private homes, anywhere where there's VIPs staying and they need to be looked after, from a day to a season for a weekend shooting party or on a permanent basis, both in the UK and overseas. Back at the Bespoke Bureau, head trainer Robin Stewart is taking a class through table service, that is the correct way to lay out cutlery and wine glasses, how to serve drinks, and how to open a champagne bottle. Excellent. In case you missed it, in polite society, this is what a champagne bottle being opened sounds like. Nowadays, you don't pop. It's not the done thing, it's not etiquette. You have a little hiss, and the, the gentle hiss of the anticipation of the bubbles coming through and into the glass allows you to be excited about the glass of wine. The Bespoke Bureau doesn't just teach butlers to be butlers. It also teaches that certain je ne sais quoi of Western sophistication to businessmen from the Middle East or China. That want to learn how to do fine dining, what piece of cutlery to pick up first, and how to meet and greet Westerners, how long to keep eye contact for, how to shake hands and so on. If you're thinking, who cares which fork you use anymore, you're probably not alone. In any case, this new demand from the nouveau riche translates into jobs for the not-so-riche. Good jobs. Ramani says a British-trained butler is looking at a starting salary of about a hundred grand. Top salaries can be three times that, but the job is essentially a life of servitude, and she stresses that it's not for everyone. I think more than anything, you've got to be prepared to let things wash over you. If you're sort of sensitive in terms of, you know, for example, how people speak to you, this perhaps is, is not the industry for you to be in. 
Yes, perhaps. For The World, I'm Russell Newlove in London. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Okay, tray tables up, seats in their upright position. We're going on a trip. This summer, we'll be taking you around the world, and you don't even need to leave your chair. We're inviting authors to share books that have taken them on journeys. First up is Pico Iyer, writer, and I think it's fair to say world traveler as well. His book, Video Night in Kathmandu, has taken readers on a journey throughout Asia since it first came out decades ago. His most recent book is The Man Within My Head. And Pico Iyer will be talking about uh, The Man Within My Head in a moment. But we're talking books now that took you somewhere. And the first place we're traveling today to is Mumbai, India. Who's taking us there? Rohinton Mystery, the great Indian novelist based in Toronto, and in particular his novel A Fine Balance from about 17 years ago. What did it do to take you to Mumbai? It plunges you for about 650 pages into the lives of just four characters in Bombay, as it was then in early 1970s, a widow, a student, and two people from almost the untouchable caste, all struggling to survive during the emergency, the dictatorship of Indira Gandhi at that time. And my parents are both from Bombay. I feel I know that city well. And yet he takes us into these hearts and homes so rendingly and with such sympathy, we really feel as if we're seeing the city from the inside out. So as you say, this is a city you know well, but what side of Mumbai did you see in a fine balance that you had never even kind of contemplated before? So I felt I knew the middle class characters already, but people from a village who go through unimaginable discrimination because they just happen to be from the leather making caste and then travel to the big city in the hope of finding their dreams and their better life and end up fighting out with all the other beggars for their little two square inches of property on the sidewalk. Uh, He makes that feel very real. So take us to our next stop, up into the Himalayas, the Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson, which came out in 1978. This is a description of a trip that Matheson made. He traveled into Inner Dolpo, which is an almost unseen, still to this day very little visited part of the Himalayas. And he was going with the biologist George Schaller in the hope of seeing a very rare snow leopard. But beyond all that, just before he took off on the trip. Matheson had lost his young wife, uh, Deborah Love, to cancer. So he was also traveling into anguish and anger and trying to come to terms with this loss. And for me, I think the best travel books always trace a physical and a kind of metaphysical journey at the same time. On the one hand, you're journeying into this crystalline, radiant part of the world that most of us have never seen. On the other hand, you're journeying into how to make sense of somebody suddenly gone from your life forever. An armchair travel classic. Finally, summer means baseball, of course. Uh, Let's go to a baseball game in Japan. Your last recommendation uh, is You Gotta Have Wa by Robert Whiting. What's particularly good about this book is that he describes what happens to American baseball players when they go over to Japan, usually sluggers age 37, 38, who go there and strike out half the time and hit home runs the other half of the time. And on the one hand, are great heroes. On the other hand, are sort of seen as barbarians. And the title, you got to have wa, refers to the Japanese word for harmony, wa, 
And Japan itself sometimes is known as the land of war, the place of harmony where everybody lives by the same rules and they all know how to get on with one another. And you can imagine into this suddenly comes an almost washed up slugger from the Atlanta Braves or the Milwaukee Brewers, who's really being hired for his individual talents, not for mm -hmm. his talent with harmony. <laughs> I've lived in Japan on and off for 25 years. And if ever you want to understand Japan's relations with the rest of the world, this is a light-hearted, but I think very discerning way to get at that. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you live in Japan uh, means that this isn't exactly a, an armchair trip for you. But I'm curious, how often do you go to a baseball game in Japan? And uh, is that a trip into or out of Japanese culture for you? Deeply into, but it's into the part of Japanese culture that most of us might never suspect exists. Because... Japanese fans are more passionate than people in Fenway Park or Yankee Stadium. They're extremely exuberant. They have a special song and dance for every player who comes up to the plate, wow. which they perform every time he comes up there. And so to this day, uh, when friends are visiting Japan, I say the first thing to do is to go to a, a Japanese baseball game because it's nothing like what you anticipate. And the second thing might be to read this book. So we land, Pico Iyer, on The Man Within My Head, uh, your latest book. Uh, you discuss another great traveler and writer, Graham Greene. Talk to me a bit about this man who's inside your head. How did he get there in the first place? I think anybody who travels and finds himself in a foreign hotel room, completely disoriented and yet drawn in by what he can't understand, instantly feels that the person next to him in that room is Graham Greene. I think he's the patron saint <laughs> of the lost traveler, and he's the companion of all of us drawn to the places we probably shouldn't go to. So I think it was when I started going to Saigon and Havana and Port-au-Prince and South Africa and interesting places in the world, I found that he'd always been there before me, and somehow, 50 or 60 years ago, caught some aspect of that place that never changes. Um, I have one last question for you. Uh, it's also about traveling, specifically your traveling as a frequent flyer. You're the master of frequent flyer miles, it seems. How many miles do you have? <laughs> well, I, I won't convict myself by admitting all of it, but over a million miles. And wow. I often think... You know, whoever came up with that system deserves a place in the Business Hall of Fame because <laughs> I often will take flights on airlines I know I don't like um, just in order to accumulate more miles. You know, six days in hell, get the seventh day free, sort of. It's a funny system, but it's got me hostage to it. Do you have a special trade secret that you can reveal on how to get more miles? No, I, I would just say I will always fly with an airline that's affiliated to my program, even if it involves flying from Boston to New York via Siberia or <laughs> Buenos Aires. <laughs> Frequent flyer Miles tips from Pico Iyer, writer, traveler. His latest book is The Man Within My Head. Thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Pico Iyer's book recommendations are guaranteed to take your imagination away to places far and wide, but perhaps you have your own favorites to share. We want to know where you're traveling this summer from your armchair. Just tweet it using the hashtag armchair travel. Okay, so in theory, music can also take you places, right? Except these days, musicians are less likely than writers to place you in a specific spot on Earth. In that spirit, we leave you today with shout out louds from Sweden. But you don't really hear Sweden in their music. They left their country a number of years ago to do what so many have tried to do in the streets of London's Camden Town, play any gig they could get in the hopes of making it big. That, Shout Out Louds, did just fine. Anyway, if you want them to take you somewhere, how about traveling back in time, like to the 1980s? This track, Sugar, is from their latest release, Optica. I want to get it out of me So hit me, hit me Since I was young Sugar on my
That's it for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. The World will be back tomorrow on the radio. Find us at theworld.org. Until then, and thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.